This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Nathan Haffel. President Trump has officially ended his administration's policy of separating families entering the country illegally. But on the ground, the situation is still complicated. Thousands of children are in shelters, and little is in place to get them reunited with their parents. Two of Colorado's members of Congress, one Democrat and one Republican, went to the border this weekend separately to see the situation for themselves. CPR's Allison Sherry has heard from both of them. Allison, welcome to the program. Thank you, Nathan. Let's start with Congresswoman Diana DeGette. I understand she visited several locations on her trip this weekend. What did she describe? So her trip started with a visit to the Adult Detention Center in Port Isabel, Texas, which she described as nothing like she'd ever seen before. She said she met 40-some women or so who didn't know where their kids were. She also visited um, afterwards a, a, quote, tender care facility for very small children who'd been separated from their parents. And one of the children we saw was a baby, nine months old. How is that baby ever going to find his mother? She said they actually had to construct babies' rooms and accommodations after the zero policy, the zero tolerance policy took effect because there were so many infants coming in. I see. And to get across the bridge into Mexico, did she have anything interesting to say about what she encountered on that side of the border? Yeah, you know, she had an interesting idea after visiting with some people who are waiting on the Mexican side, sometimes for days with no supplies or water or anything, to apply for asylum. She noted it would be a better idea to allow people to apply for asylum at U.S. embassies in their home countries. This would alleviate the need for them to cross Mexico, which can be really dangerous. Oh, so they'd know whether or not they'll get asylum before they take that dangerous trip through Mexico. Exactly. But it's unclear whether that would even work because a number of people are so desperate to leave that they feel that journey through Mexico, even with children, is actually safer than staying where they are. Hmm. Um, I actually talked to a woman living in Colorado, in a Colorado mountain town, who did the journey in 2016 and was temporarily temporarily separated from her daughter. Here she is talking about the trip. No podías llevarla a México porque porque esperas que aquí te la atendamos. She was telling the story here about how she didn't know anyone in Mexico, and she and her daughter were on a boat for 24 hours off the coast before getting to the U.S. border. And you say this happened in 2016. So family separations happened under President Obama as well? They did. Um, It was a lot less frequent. And and there was no official policy of forced family separations under Obama or any other previous president. How did you find this woman? Well, I was connected with her through the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network, which has a lawyer assigned to her case. She's speaking out now because she found the news in the past few weeks about family separations to be really anguishing, Mm. even two years after she was reunited with her daughter. They have a 2020 trial date set on her um, asylum claim, which is why CPR News agreed not to use her name or the exact place she's living. Until then, she's working in housekeeping out of motel, um, trying to make her daughter's life as normal as possible. But says the time apart when they were, you know, separated at the border changed the little girl and still and she still sees some of the effects of that. She's more fearful, more withdrawn, quiet. And the girl is now seven. Now, since the family separation policy has ended, ICE says it's reunited about 500 parents with their children. But there are thousands more still in shelters or foster care around the country. 
What did you hear from Colorado's con- Congress members about the reunification process? Well, both Kaufman and DeGette said they believed the people actually working on the border, that's people from the Department of Homeland Security, ICE, Health and Human Services, they actually want to reunite families. No one's on the working on the border who doesn't want this to happen. It's just proving to be extremely difficult because there are multiple federal agencies with competing lists of people. You know, HHS has lists of kids. ICE has lists of parents. Here's Kaufman talking about his impatience on the time it's taking. You really need one person that's in charge of this process of putting people back together, putting families back together, and coordinating all these agencies. I mean, they say it's coordinated, but I think it's going to take some real follow-up to make sure that this happens as, as soon as possible. You know, and DeGette said a similar thing, that the Trump administration needs to appoint a temporary czar or some person like that to be in charge of stitching these bureaucracies together to make this happen. Let's see. Kaufman is a Republican. DeGette's a Democrat. Are they generally saying the same thing about the situation at the border? I mean, you know, the way they're messaging it is different, but they're both generally saying the same thing. DeGette is more forceful in putting this on the Trump administration, the actual policy of separating families, that is. But she says the overall crisis at the border, the thousands of people a week showing up seeking asylum, which has been going on for years, is going to take bigger solutions. And that includes working with the countries where these people are coming from to help those countries become better, safer, so fewer people want to leave. Here's uh, DeGette saying she hopes Congress can find a way to help. You know, this is not a partisan issue, family separation. Nobody should be in favor of family separation, and we should be able to work together in a reasonable and bipartisan way to stop this. And and for his part, uh, Kaufman said this broader issue is a byproduct of Congress dragging its feet on immigration reform. Now, the House is set to vote on an immigration bill this week, the so-called compromise measure between moderate and conservative Republicans. Can you give us a preview of where DeGette, Kaufman and the rest of the state's delegation are likely to come down on that? Yeah, you know, Kaufman's supportive of the so-called compromise measure, which is not a compromise, by the way, between Democrats and Republicans. It's a compromise between the Republican factions in the House. He likes, in this one bill, he likes the path to citizenship for dreamers. And he'll said, he says he'll work this week to get it passed. DeGette is not likely going to support that compromise bill. Uh, I don't expect any of the Colorado Democrats to vote yes. All right. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Nathan. Allison Sherry covers immigration and the justice system for CPR. Just ahead, a Colorado-born artist who destroyed his early works to create something entirely new. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. He describes his art as futuristic artifacts. Colorado-born artist Jeffrey Gibson draws on his American Indian heritage to create works that both honor Native cultures and acknowledge contemporary society. His artwork is colorful and crafted from materials like elk hide, beads, trading post blankets, and even punching bags. You can see Gibson's work at the Denver Art Museum now through August 12th. He joins me via Skype. Jeffrey, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Now, this is the first major museum exhibit of your work, and it focuses on what's considered a pivotal point in your career and the art that you've made since then. What happened in 2011 that made that year an important one for your art? My training is as a painter, and uh, I was working for for many, many years with oil paint on canvas. And, um, you know, those paintings were being exhibited. They would go out on exhibit. They would come back. And in New York City, you're paying a premium for your studio space. And, 
you're paying for storage of these paintings. And at one point, they really began to feel more like failure than anything positive. And it was totally impulsive, but I pulled all of the paintings out of the out of the racks, and I took a razor blade and I cut them off with the stretcher bars, mm. and w- totally intuitively put them in a bag, went to the laundromat, and I washed them. Um, I remember just kind of cautiously shoving them into the the, the washers, um, putting them on the highest heat possible, and I would just sit there and watch them being washed for about three cycles. Oh, and that must have destroyed them. I'm assuming. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, oil paint, um, so the canvas would shrink from the heat and then um, it would force some of the paint to pop off and then it kind of stayed on in other areas. But what happened is when it, once it dried and I was in my studio again, you know, it had buckled, it became a very irregular surface and it actually resembled something like an animal skin much more than a painted canvas. Um, I folded them up. I remember they would be, and they're actually quite beautiful, um, almost like a textile, like a like an antique textile that you would look at. And um, people would come in, and I would, you know, I'd kind of pull them out. We'd all talk about like how beautiful they were and the distress of them. But um, it wasn't until I made the first punching bag in 2011 that I decided to cover uh, part of the first punching bag in um, one of these paintings. I had been going and working with a counselor. Um, all of these issues were coming up for me around um, inequality in the art world, uh, no representation of Native people, um, feeling that there was actually much more homophobia in the art world than I had expected. And there was something about trying to reconnect sort of my mind and body. When you cut those paintings out of their frames, was it your way to signify rebirth or was it like, I'm done, I'm out of here, I'm finished? Probably more of feeling completely finished. But, um, you know, I think that for many artists, there's these moments of trying to tempt yourself to like, to, to stop. And, um, and that's kind of, at this point, I really believe it's like, not everyone is meant to be an artist. And I, and people have told me before, if you can think of doing anything else that would bring you happiness, go and do that. But if this um, being an artist and making continues to return to you, it's kind of what you have to pursue. And I think that that's so maybe yeah, I was trying to sabotage myself by cutting them off and washing them. But um, I was continuing to make things the entire time. When you enter the Like a Hammer exhibition here in Denver, the first artwork you'll see is Late Fragment After Carver. And this is a wall hanging composed of remnants of those canvases you destroyed in 2011. They've been repainted and stitched together, as you've said. There's a lot going on in this work, both visually and symbolically. What were you thinking about as you created something new with pieces from your past? Hmm. It's it's tough to say because that period that period really was very very intuitive. It really was sort of this mm. last ditch effort to try to make something um that that I felt was important, you know? And I think also one of the big things for me at the time was to stop trying it's almost like to stop pretending to be an artist and to stop caring if you're going to be a successful artist who's who people respond to the work and you're literally cobbling together what you have around you to try to make something um the wall hangings in particular i think to get off of the stretcher bars you know i probably couldn't have articulated then but clearly i didn't want to make a stretched painting on canvas i wanted to make something that was from all of these fragments i do have a background of working in museum collections where oftentimes you will find fragments of beadwork 
fragments of a garment. And um, they kind of hold an in-between space between being something complete and valuable and being a, a very precious fragment that we kind of have to make up what it, what it originally was. We're speaking with Colorado-born artist Jeffrey Gibson, who draws on his American Indian heritage in his work. Uh, he's joining us via Skype, so you may hear some blips and bleeps in there that are due to our connection uh, with him. I want to talk about your childhood now, uh, because I understand you you felt like an outsider even as a kid. Uh, your father was in the Army and worked for the Department of Defense, so you spent much of your childhood abroad in West Germany and South Korea. You returned to the U.S. in the 90s to go to the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, And I understand these experiences when you were younger brought up all kinds of these confusing questions about your identity. How so? Well, when you live abroad, especially during that time, um, probably the first most important thing is that you're American. Um, And then the next thing is sort of, you know, what what kind of American are you? You know, how did how did you with brown skin land end up in being American? And being Native American, you know, I think many people don't know how to identify someone who's Native American just by looking at them. So oftentimes I've been asked if I was Hawaiian, if I was African American. Um, And so I've very early in life decided that I couldn't really be too preoccupied with those questions. So I just kind of would like let them roll off my back and I would just sort of move, move almost um, invisibly through the world. And um, what's great about that is you kind of get to be a fly on the wall. You know, people aren't really paying attention to you. You just get to witness sort of what's happening in in somewhat of an unedited way, I think, sometimes. You mentioned earlier about using punching bags and actually wrapping a punching bag with some of that distressed art that you had in 2011. Uh, People can actually see a series of intricately decorated Everlast punching bags that you've created. They're covered in beads. You also sometimes layer your works in metal studs, trading post blankets, and fringe or tassels. Is this part of your Native American history and heritage coming out and and showing itself in your work? I think throughout, you know, I'm 46 years old. Throughout my life, I have been introduced to um, so many different, you know, kind of strains of Native American art histories and histories, cultural histories. The Native community that I've been a part of during my life has always had people from so many different tribes. And the difference is when you're talking to other Native people, you know, being Choctaw is very different than being um, Seminole, is being very different from being Dakota, from Anishinaabe. And we all have different cultural practices. But when you're in the context of non-Native people, it still comes back to feathers and beads. Um, and and so I think what I discovered probably in my 30s was that um, I was, as an artist, working in a contemporary art world where so many people were unaware of these distinctions or unaware of these histories or even how to tell the difference between something that might be ceremonial versus something which is just utilitarian. So that's when I feel like this is like such a rich um, area to work in that I and I I don't want to feel like I'm responsible for introducing people um, to these histories, but just making these connections between the how and the why some things have become part of popular culture. Other things have not become part of popular culture. They've remained in their own smaller, specific communities. But why punching bags? Well, the punching bags came about when... um, 
when I really was questioning leaving being an artist and I was working with a therapist, I had so much anger inside of me. And um, the therapist recommended that I work with a physical trainer as a way to reconnect my mind and body. And um, that trainer uh, would hold a punching bag in front of me, would ask me to kick it, to punch it, and to name who was it that I was angry at. And when you're dealing with things like racism and homophobia and classism, there is not one singular person who you're angry at. It's a, it's a cultural societal condition. So there's no real place to deposit your anger. And um, so there was something about this punching bag that I wanted to take um, these adornments that I had known about and I had met with many more traditional people who made their own clothing, made their own regalia. And I realized this was a form of resisting acculturation and it also commands respect and it commands honor. And many people who have dealt with punching and fighting as a, as a sport, you know, it is very much about that. You feel um, it is cathartic to actually name your anger and to physically uh, exercise it from your body. And a number of these punching bags feature text as well. One says, you can feel it all over, which is from the chorus of the Stevie Wonder song, Sir Duke. The song even plays in the room that work is exhibited in at the Denver Art Museum. And then there's another punching bag with the song lyric, I put a spell on you. Why were these particular songs meaningful to you? Um, I've been going to nightclubs since I was quite young. Uh, when we lived in Korea, I started going to nightclubs when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And when we moved back to the United States and we lived in Washington, D.C., I was going to a gay club um, called Tracks in Washington, D.C. from the time I was 16, 17, 18. Again, jump forward to me being in my 30s as an artist. And I was thinking about, you know, what pieces of advice did I carry with me? I kept turning to these lyrics of the gay nightclub of the late 80s and early 90s. In those songs, although that they're kind of uplifting and they um, they can be very almost positive and happy, they also um, sometimes are talking about being alone. They're talking about um, asking for help. They're talking about dreaming. And so um, I started incorporating those words first into the titles of the works, and ultimately they became into the beaded panels that go onto the punching bags and the other works. So there's always this kind of duality to the words that I'm choosing to use in my work. And many of your wall hangings also use text from songs, poems, and famous quotes. One of your works titled American History quotes writer James Baldwin. It says, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. Why were you drawn to that particular quote? I think that that quote in particular, you know, there's very few quotes like that. Um, I think... Oftentimes, I feel like as, as, well, just as a person today, I feel like, you know, you're being asked to establish your politics very clearly. But for me, that quote really says a lot because politically, the story is always so much more broad. You know, it's not about choosing and fighting for a kind of simplified version of the larger narrative. But I'm really, I'm really interested in, in, in the whole spectrum of the narrative, you know, um, everyone's decision making and how and why it seems right for someone to oppress someone else. Because I do think that sometimes, well, I think many times in that person's mind, this is the right thing to do. It is the right thing to keep this group of people uneducated. It is the right thing to keep these people um, poor or without health care. But you don't consider this protest art, do you? I don't. 
No, I don't at all. Because I don't think that it's reactionary. I don't think that it is, it's not pointed into one set of circumstances that's in a moment in time. I think I would, I would relate what I do much more to kind of a social, if there is an activism, it's more of like a social activism. Um, you know, I think a lot about justice and just bringing light to different situations. Um, but I don't, I don't think of myself as an activist. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Contemporary artist Jeffrey Gibson. He joined us via Skype. Denver Art Museum has curated the first major museum exhibition of his work, Jeffrey Gibson, Like a Hammer. It's on view through August 12th. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. If you thought former Denver Bronco Peyton Manning and his clan had a lock on sports dynasties, wait till you meet the Wright family. They're the kings, that's multiple kings, of the rodeo. Here's one, Ryder Wright, on his way to the World Saddle Bronc Championship last December. Down to a two-header now for that World Championship, and this gets part of the two. Ryder Wright, boy, does he know how to show a bronc. Yes, he does. Then he is so classy. And it looks like he may do it again. Ryder Wright. Oh, man. Ryder, a baby-faced 19-year-old, took the championship. He's the fourth member of his family to win rodeo's biggest prize. The Wrights came from a ranch in southern Utah. Pulitzer Prize-winning author John Branch tells their story in a new book called The Last Cowboys. John, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. So let's start with one of the other rights. This is Jake describing what it's like out there in the rodeo ring. Oh, perfect ride. Everything's clear. Marking mark him out that first jump and he hits so hard he rips your feet out of there and you're beating him to the ground about a foot and everything's back and and there it really is one of the best feelings in the world. It literally feels like you're sitting in a rocking chair and it's just rolling. And your feet are just flying. It's awesome. It gets me going. I get pumped up. That came from an online documentary. Now, Jake has competed in the national final seven times, although he's not won. How did this family, the Wright family, get so into rodeo? Well, I mean, it, it starts with the uh, the father, the patriarch of the family, Bill Wright, who did some rodeo when he was a kid uh, before he started to raise 13 children, mm-hmm. including seven of these boys. And um, his oldest boy, Cody, found Bill's old rodeo equipment up in the rafters one day when he was 11 or 12 years old and tried it on. And pretty soon Bill was taking Cody to rodeos. And one by one, each of the boys in that family got into rodeo and they've all found a, uh, a niche there. You know, as you mentioned, four of them have become world champions. Yeah. And, and they're all experts, let's say, at saddle bronc riding. This is, of course, the, the bronc that you see in the ring and they're, you know, bucking all over the place, right? Exactly right. It's like it's the classic rodeo event. Um, I always tell people that it, you know it's the silhouette that you see on the Wyoming license plate is a saddle bronc rider. Oh um, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's yeah, so it's a little different than bronc um, or bareback riding, which of course being bareback, there is no saddle. This is one that people like Bill Wright and the and the Wright family believe is is the classic event. It's the original event. And it's the it's a useful event um, because it stems from trying to break horses on the ranch. You know, you have a wild horse and you um, put a 
try to throw a saddle on it and try to get on it and see if you can tame it enough to make it useful for, for you on the ranch. Now, with all these winners in the family, it sounds pretty glamorous, but I understand rodeoing isn't a very certain trade, is it? It is about as uncertain as anything you can imagine. Um, you know, I've covered sports a long time, and these guys are a, a different breed. And a lot of that is because there are literally no guarantees. Um, they will travel, say, for a Friday night rodeo. They may leave Thursday night at midnight and drive 12 hours to a, to a rodeo and then sleep in the parking lot and perform that night. And they've driven now 1,000 miles for a chance at an eight-second ride. And that eight-second ride may not last eight seconds. They may get bucked off. It may last eight seconds, and they may have won no money because only only usually six people will, will win money depending on their score. And so they'll leave the rodeo and go to another one. And they have, you know, they've been known to, to travel two or 3,000 miles over the course of a weekend to four different rodeos and walk away with zero dollars. Um, that's not an easy way to make money. But the next rodeo could be the big payday. They may, maybe they'll win several thousand dollars. So they just keep plugging away. So they're on the road a lot, yeah? Yeah, they're on the road 220, 250 days a year. Um, this time of year is the, is the, the busiest time. The 4th the of July week is usually called Cowboy Christmas because they are going to as many rodeos as possible, zigzagging all around the West, literally arriving as the rodeo begins. And as soon as their ride is over, they're back in the truck to beat the crowds out of the fairgrounds or wherever the rodeo happens to be. And they're off to another rodeo, doing two or three, sometimes in the same day, just to try to make a few hundred dollars at each one. And I want to point out that the Cowboys call it a world championship, but, but they're inflating that a bit, aren't they? Uh, yeah, just like just like we do with the World Series, I suppose, in baseball or the NBA's World Championship, uh, they 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 perform at the at the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas, and that's where, strangely enough, at the National Finals, where the World Champions are um, are decided. So yeah, there's a little bit of hyperbole there. Yeah, but Canada does participate in, in this, right? Canada does, yeah, and and um, more and more we see cowboys from places like Brazil as well, especially in bull riding. You spend a lot of time with uh, the rights on these trips. What's it like for them on the road? What's it like, you know, being next to them as they go from uh, rodeo to rodeo to rodeo? Well, it's it, fascinating in a couple of ways. One, it's, it's a lonely experience. I mean, they do a lot of driving at night and then sleeping in their campers um, during the day. The rights are, you know, they all have big Dodge King Cab trucks with big campers on the back. And usually there'll be four people in, a, in one of those trucks. And at any time, there might be two up front and two in the back sleeping um, as they cruise down the highway. And they know where all the best places are to get gas, um, where all the good truck stops are, where all the good fast food places are, where to park on the side of the road when they want to catch a couple of hours because they're running ahead of time. Um, And really, it's a lot of downtime and driving for what gets worked up to be an eight-second ride. Um, suddenly, you know, they're on a horse, and eight seconds later, it's over, and either they won a lot of money, or they got hurt, or they did okay, and but got no money, or very little money, and they pack up their saddles and all their uh, all their gear, and they get back in the truck and go somewhere else. And there are no horses with them, right? Because they the horses are already at the rodeo. That's true. Um, in the roping events, things like calf roping, um, or barrel racing, those people bring their own livestock. But in the rough stock events, you know, they're not bringing their own horses or their own bulls. Now, do they know the, um, so yeah, the they horses that they're going to be lighter than others? Now, do they know the horses that they're going to be riding on? Like, hey, this one I know is going to be really rough, or this one isn't, or is it kind of a chance? No, they, they, they know usually about a week ahead of time. Um, and what's interesting about the rights is that there are so many of them doing this. Cody years ago started a book, a notebook, kind of like one of those um, chemistry notebooks that we used to have in high school, mm-hmm. um, 
with all the lines in it. And he would write down every horse that he was on, every bronc he was on. And he would write down what that ride did, what that horse did in terms of its tendency. You know, did a buck coming out of the chute? Did it turn left? Did it turn right? Um, and how he held the rein. A big part of, of saddle bronc riding is where to hold the rein. Do you give it a lot of rope or, or not very much rope? And so he has like a, a cheat sheet that he passes now down to his brothers. And so when another brother's in a rodeo a thousand miles away, he will call Cody and say, hey, give me the, uh, give me the lowdown on this horse. Hmm. And so they, they keep kind of um, scouting reports on all these horses that they, that they ride. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Huffle. We're speaking with Pulitzer Prize-winning author John Branch. He tells the story of the Wright family in a new book called The Last Cowboys. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Bill. He was uh, never a rodeo guy, always kind of a rancher. Uh, do you have a favorite moment with him? Um, I have a lot of favorite moments with him. He, um, Bill is a guy who grew up in, in southern Utah, right outside of Zion National Park. And he has, his family's been running cattle there on the little postage stamp of land that they own right outside the park um, for about 150 years. And so Bill now spends most of his winters where they keep the cattle there in a small trailer. And my favorite moments with him are just alone in the trailer with nothing but the desert sky, the mooing and the bleeding of the cows outside mm-hmm. his door, the um, silhouette of the of the rocks of Zion outside his door to the west or to the east. And um, he's sitting there just peeling potatoes into a small pan. I mean, he just lives kind of a lonely existence on his own, um, away from home, taking care of his cattle herd. Does he feel lonely out there or, or is it something he loves doing? I think he likes doing it. I think it's um, peace of mind for him. What he's really trying to do is build um, this cattle herd that he has. It's a pretty modest herd, but it's growing. And he's trying to use, he's trying to build it big enough that he can pass it down to his sons and to his grandsons um, should they want to take it over. And now with the boys all doing so well in rodeo, they have more money. So the boys are slowly starting to, to buy cattle for the, for the herd. They're starting to, to buy permits to give them more room to, um, or more range land for this herd. They're all starting to slowly buy in to this idea. And um, Bill's big dilemma now is does he have enough room where he is oh. on, the, on the private land to, uh, to do it there? Um, so I, I think he loves being on that land that they've that they've had in, in the in the family for generations, um, and he spends a lot a lot of time alone. Um, his wife is a, a teacher about two hours away from where they where they make their home. Um, his wife is a teacher in town. You mentioned the toughness of these boys. I want to hear from Cody. He's the oldest of the right boys and really a legendary figure in the sport. He has two championships. Uh, let's listen to him and his parents talk about his injuries. Dad Bill starts listing them. Yeah, he did get a concussion. Clavicle, he broke his clavicle. Yeah, I broke his clavicle. Um, my shoulder come out in May. Broke my collarbone in January. I'm pretty sure he, got, he broke his back. Because he's like a bionic man, you know? He's had so much stuff done to him. Yeah, he, That's knocked, just one his teeth, kid. he knocked his teeth oh, back. Oh, yeah, too. he had to have braces for a while. It's like a badge of honor for them, all the injuries they've received. You know, I've asked all of them, hey, list me your injuries that you've had, and they can't do it because they don't really remember. I mean, any one of those injuries to somebody like you or me or especially me would be something I would be, I'd be telling yeah, I'd my be kids about. <laughs> yeah, I'd be out and I'd be telling my kids about it like 20 years later. And to these guys, they can't remember them a year later. Um, it barely makes the, the story at the, at the Thanksgiving table. You mentioned how uh, because the boys are winning now that they've got more money to support the, the ranch. But if they weren't doing that, w- would the ranch be in trouble? 
I don't know if the ranch would be in trouble. I think Bill would still find a way to have a, a modest um, cattle operation. But what this allows them to do is actually dream big. Um, and really, I think the crux of the story is at a time in the 21st century with all the issues facing the West, all the pressures that tell you this is not really the way to build a future in the West because of land issues and climate change and so on, urbanization. Bill is thinking now, wow, we actually have a chance to keep doing what we've been doing for generations, which is growing a cattle herd. And yeah. if I can pass that down, if we can sort of buck the trend that's happening out West by by using our traditions, um, let's do it. And the boys are buying in. So they are, they are really using like 19th century ideals to try to build a future in the 21st century. Are the rights better at their sport because they have each other or could they all do this on their own separate from, from being family? Oh, there's no doubt they're better because they have each other. You know, because they travel together, um, they have the best teacher in the world, or at least one of them, in Cody, who's the older brother. He teaches them everything from how to ride to how to navigate um, the hundreds of rodeos that are taking place every year in the West. Um, you, you could not have a better teacher. And then that gets passed down to his brothers, and now it's filtered down to the second generation. You started the show with a, uh, a clip of Ryder. Ryder is one of Cody's kids. And so Cody is now able to ride Saddle Bronc at the top level at the same time that he now has three kids riding as professional cowboys. Um, it's kind of contagious. You know, they, they all learn from one another. And, um, you know, like we mentioned with the with the Manning family, yeah. you know, was Eli better because he had Peyton? I'm sure. And I'm, I think that is uh, exponentially true with the rights. Are they competitive? Do they, they get mad over who wins and who lo- uh, loses throughout the year? They don't. One of the uh, the charms of rodeo, and I think with this family in particular, is that they don't root against each other. They don't. They aren't that competitive. I thought when I went into this that maybe I would see some of that, and I, and I really didn't. And it's interesting because some of them have really fantastic years. For example, they might win several hundred thousand dollars, and some of them just can't buy a break, and they end up kind of crapping out of the sport and go back to other jobs, at least temporarily, and try to build themselves back in. They're not throwing all their money into one big pot. Um, so it's still a very individual thing. But they really cheer for each other. There is, it is interesting, though, when they have so many of them that they will sometimes pick and choose rodeos so that they don't compete against each other. You know, if, if seven rights show up at the same rodeo, you've just made it a lot more difficult to win any money, including if you're a right. So they will sometimes divide and conquer around the West. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. John Branch is a sports writer for the New York Times. He grew up in Golden, Colorado, west of Denver. His new book is The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. The Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs turns 100 this month. The resort was built by a businessman, Spencer Penrose, and he spared no expense in creating what he hoped would be one of the grandest hotels in the world. Construction alone cost $2 million, a fortune, especially at that time, with another million spent on furniture and interior decorating. Over the years, the Broadmoor has maintained its posh reputation. At the foot of majestic Cheyenne Mountain, with a shimmering lake to mirror the sweep of its old-world architecture. The Broadmoor, reached to the blue Colorado spring sky, gave birth to what can only be called the Broadmoor Experience. This is the place to which you come after you think you have been everywhere worth going and seeing everything worth seeing. And then you begin experiencing the incomparable Broadmoor. Lovely. 
Joining me is Leah Davis-Witherow. She's curator of history with the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So lovely, right? Yeah, that's... (laughs) It makes me chuckle. Yes. Tell me more about... Let's go way back. Tell me more about Spencer Penrose. So Spencer Penrose is the scion of a prominent Philadelphia family. And he has older brothers who are wildly successful in every single thing they do. One is a physician. One becomes a United States senator. Another is a renowned geologist. So he, after barely graduating from Harvard, comes out west to make his way, seek a fortune, and ends up doing quite poorly. Hmm. When he gets some brotherly advice from Dick Penrose, his older brother, to come to Colorado Springs and reunite with an old Philadelphia childhood friend. Uh, Charles Tut. And he arrives penniless in Colorado Springs, and Charles Tut invites him to partner with him in business and even loans him $500 to do so. So that's the start of what would become an auspicious career. Um, The two invest in real estate and Penrose and Tut are in the Pikes Peak region at the exact right time. Hmm. The Cripple Creek Victor gold rush is exploding. People are pulling millions of dollars of gold out of the ground on the other side of Pikes Peak. And they invest in the cash-on-delivery mine, COD mine. They sell it for about a quarter of a million dollars. But they quickly realize there's more money to be made in uh, refining gold ore than to dig it out of the ground. So they open um, Colorado-Philadelphia Reduction Works and then later the United States Reduction and Refinery Company that becomes essentially a mill trust. So they make money. Um, After the gold is extracted, they refine it, they process it, and then they are able to sell it. So how did he get into the hotel business? What was his vision for the Broadmoor? Well, there's another important business that needs to take place first. He Uh invests in uh, copper country in Utah. And with a a bright young engineer named um, Jackling, they buy really low-grade ore in Bingham Canyon, Utah, and they reprocess it. And this is where Penrose makes his millions. This is the bulk of his fortune. So now he's a millionaire and what to do with it. Um, he travels widely. He's married. Uh, he married the beautiful uh, Julie Villiers Lewis Macmillan Penrose in 1906. She brings culture and refinement to Spencer Penrose. They travel the world. They collect antiques and art. And then he begins to envision um, a type of boosterism that Colorado Springs had really never seen. We were a, a sleepy resort town that catered to tuberculars and consumptives who came to to regain their health in our beautiful fresh air, 300 days of sunshine. But Penrose wants to go bigger and bolder. And so he decides to open a variety of different amenities. And um, our town's founder really encouraged people to see the beauty of the Pikes Peak region. Spencer Penrose comes along in the early 20th century, and he wants to expand on it, almost exploit it. He wants to make use of it. So he builds, he, he is uh, so bold, he builds a highway, an auto highway up Pikes Peak in 1915. And then he starts an auto race in 1916, second oldest auto race in the country, next to the Indianapolis 500. He purchases the Manitou Incline, and he's he's just building a set of amenities, but the the grand jewel, if you will, is a hotel. Yeah. 
This is an era when lots of Americans are traveling abroad to Europe and to the Middle East and to Asia. And he wants to be able to offer the Foot of the Rockies, the finest hotel in America, that kind of is reminiscent of Europe, but also um, fits into the scenery and provides these luxurious accommodations that, that really are just out there back door. I'm thinking of the hotels at Yellowstone and, mm-hmm. and places like that. But this is this is a little bit different, right? This is a grand hotel on a, on a different scale, like the stuff you saw maybe back east. Absolutely. So think Greenbrier Resort or Hotel Del Coronado in California. It's, um, it's a resort in and of itself. So it's about five miles southwest of Colorado Springs downtown proper. And it's set amidst this beautiful backdrop. Cheyenne Mountain is right behind the hotel. So you have these lovely um, tree-covered hills, um, beautiful, luxuriant landscape, and then he sets an architectural jewel right at the foot of these mountains. So it is to rival the best of Europe, the best in America. And he hires an architect, Frederick Sterner, and he promptly fires him. Um, his design was, <laughs> it was altogether, altogether too European. Penrose wanted to blend the best of Europe and the best of America. So he creates an Italianate building. It's, it's, you know, it looks like it could be on the Mediterranean Sea, but it also sits just in front of those mountains. So it's meant to make use of them as the backdrop. So it's white and it's it's got a tower that's slightly off center, which makes it kind of loving and unique. Yeah. Um, and it's it's stunning outside and in. And the Broadmoor opened for guests on June 29th, 1918, but it wasn't an immediate success. Is that right? Well, no, they they had a, first of all, they had a party on June 1st, 1918, and he invited about 400 of his closest friends. Um, he wanted to set this hotel off in grand style. So they had the best champagne, the best food. They brought in, um, you know, Rockefeller was there, I remember. John D. Rockefeller was there at the party. Unfortunately, the paint fumes of the newly finished hotel had not dried, and he actually left and spent the night at the Antlers. Um, but the hotel opens, and it's it's a tough time to go into business. The United States has just entered World War One. People really aren't traveling. In fact, the first event he held on the grounds was a golf tournament to benefit the Red Cross that raised $20,000. What did the Broadmoor mean for the city of Colorado Springs? Did it fulfill that purpose back then of becoming the place that everyone wanted to come to? You know, for us in Colorado Springs, it's a point of pride. It's more than a hotel. It's a landmark. It's a treasure. Um, Even if you don't stay there, you walk the grounds and, you know, you buy something in the shops and everyone goes there to see the Christmas lights. The Broadmoor has always been a point of pride. It's been something of great beauty. We know it attracts people from around the world, and it has. Everyone from dignitaries to movie stars to uh, sportsmen and women alike. But to us, it's our own little treasure in our backyard. And it it survived some pretty you know tough times in the in the U.S. history or U.S. history. Of course, you have the Depression. How did it make it through the Depression? Well, it actually shut down for one oh, season really? in the fall of 1935. It shut down, reemerged, reopened in the summer of 1936 for the summer season, and it never shut down again. Now. It wasn't always profitable, but it always was attractive because Spencer and Julie Penrose made sure that it was equipped with the finest furnishings. 
in their travels around the globes, they collected materials from Asia, from Turkey, from Egypt, and they filled the hotel with all these beautiful things. So when times were tough, Spencer, you know, he reached into his own pocket to help pay and to make sure that hotel stayed open. Now, Penrose died in 1939. Who took over the hotel at that time? Well, Julie Penrose uh, oversaw sort of the next phase of the hotel, um, the El Pomar investment company and the El Pomar Foundation, which was founded by Julian Spencer, ran that hotel for the next several decades under the leadership of Charles Tutt Jr. So Charles Tutt Sr., who'd been an original partner of Spencer Penrose's back in the gold mining days, his son was really the mentee of Spencer Penrose. And he was one of his most trusted advisors and associates. And he took over as president of hotel operations once Spencer Penrose passed. And eventually, did you say that the Gaylord family also had a hand in this? Of course, we know they're building big things out by the airport, massive resort out there. Absolutely. What's remarkable is that this grand hotel has only had four owners, Spencer Penrose, El Pomar, the Gaylord family, and now uh, Anschutz. And how is it doing today? It's better than ever. I I don't know if you've had a chance to visit recently, but I was there for um, the Historic Preservation Alliance of Colorado Springs gave the Broadmoor Hotel an award for for really just caring so dutifully to this beautiful historic landmark. Um, I was there just a month ago, and there's been a recent renovation, and it's it's lovingly restored, but bringing the newest amenities. It's one of the most remarkable things about the Broadmoor is that it's stayed the same. It stayed true to its heritage, but it also has been successfully reinvented and reimagined, so it's always attractive to new generations of visitors. So, for instance, the hotel lobby has been renovated to put in more seating areas and fireplaces that, frankly, look like they were there when the hotel opened in 1918. So it's, it's, it's even more beautiful than it's ever been. Now, before we go, I, ha- I have to ask about the logo, the Broadmoor logo, which is its name. <laughs> but the A looks really different. It's, it's smaller than the other letters. Uh, what's with that? Do you want the truth or do you want the story? Well, I want to hear both. <laughs> okay. So an oft-repeated legend is that Spencer Penrose rode his horse uh, – He was drunk at the time, rode his horse into the lobby of the Antlers Hotel and was immediately ordered out. He was so deeply offended, he carried on a grudge against the Antlers for years after that. Um, Another version of the story states that he tried to buy the Antlers Hotel but was rebuffed. Um, They just couldn't agree on a price, and so he, he carried on resentment. For decades. And that's the A is smaller for that reason. And absolutely. The the truth is that the Broadmoor had been an established name both as a dairy and a previous hotel, in addition to the Broadmoor's use in a variety of other different trademarks. So to copyright the Broadmoor Hotel, the A is lifted to set it apart. So it's simply just for copyright purposes. It is, but the story's still good. <laughs> it is. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Leah Davis-Witherow is Curator of History with the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. The Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs turns 100 this month. Finally today, cellist Neela Pekarik hit it big in 2012 as a founding member of the Denver folk rock group The Lumineers. Their debut album was a smash hit and earned the trio two Grammy nods. 
Despite their demanding tour schedule, Pekarik, a Colorado native, found time to write and record a folk opera called Rattlesnake. It's based on the life of pioneer Kate McHale, who in 1925 allegedly killed 140 snakes to save her life and that of her three-year-old son. Pekarik discovered the story of Rattlesnake Kate as a student at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. There's a place called Centennial Village that has preserved a lot of old homes and things of the founding people of Greeley. And so in their small museum, she's kind of the main event. And I stumbled upon that story and became obsessed with this person. Pekarik says most of the songs for Rattlesnake are inspired by love letters sent between Kate and a man in Iowa. And he read about her story in the paper of the snake encounter and wrote her a fan letter, essentially. And this turned into a epic 40-year <laughs> exchange where they never met. And in fact, he gets married at one point and says, you know, you should send your letters to a P.O. box because my wife isn't stoked on this. Mila Pekarik singing Western Woman in the CPR Performance Studio. Her original folk opera about Colorado pioneer rattlesnake Kate McHale will be released as an album later this year. And that's our show. But first, a question. Got tomato troubles? Is your lawn getting it down? We'll get answers to your most pressing gardening questions on Colorado Matters this Thursday. Send them to news at CPR.org. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.